As you've probably heard by now, we've teamed up with BetMGM this season. We'll be using BetMGM lines to make all of our picks, and we'll have special offers for our listeners each week. If you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC, and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager with BetMGM. Here's how it works. Download the BetMGM app and sign up using bonus code THEATHLETIC. Make your first deposit of at least $10, place your first bet on any game, and claim your voucher for a one-year subscription to The Athletic. See BetMGM.com for terms. U.S. promotional offers not available in D.C., Mississippi, New York, Nevada, Ontario, or Puerto Rico. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Available in the U.S. Call 877-8-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY 467-369 in New York. Call 1-800-NEXT-STEP in Arizona. 1-800-327-5050 in Massachusetts. 1-800-BETS-OFF in Iowa. 1-800-270-7117 for confidential help in Michigan. 1-800-981-0023 in Puerto Rico. First bet offer for new customers only in partnership with Kansas Crossing Casino and Hotel. Don't forget, if you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager. Welcome to The Audible, presented by Trader Joe's. I'm Stuart Mandel, joined as always by Bruce Feldman for Week 6 Recap. It was a crazy day. A lot of weirdness is the way I would put it, Bruce. And I want to start with perhaps the weirdest moment of all in a game that probably almost nobody was watching at the time. But uh, on ACC Network in primetime, Miami, Georgia Tech. Georgia Tech, keep in mind, got whooped last week by Bowling Green. Uh, and yet this game goes down to the wire, but Miami is in position to win. They are up 20 to 17 and all they have to do is take a knee and the clock will run out. And what happened next is one of the biggest coaching fiascos I've ever seen. Instead, they hand off to Don Cheney Jr. He fumbles, Georgia Tech recovers, and then Georgia Tech turns into I don't know, Haynes King turns into Caleb Williams and they go 76 yards in in, uh, 26 seconds and win the game. And we're all just left dumbfounded at what happened. And also, like how much, you know, Mario Cristobal has not quite, had not quite won over the Miami fan base yet. And now when something like this happens, I feel like, Everybody jumps off the bandwagon. Yeah, look, there's no other way to say it is an an inexcusable coaching decision to do that in that scenario where all you have to do is kneel on the ball twice and the game is over. And these staffs, not just Miami, but all almost all these college football staffs are so bloated to the point where you have people who can talk somebody off the ledge, point out the obvious in the, in the moment, because that's their job of game management situations. And it's not the first time, like it's well been well documented. Mario had a similar brain cramp situation when he was at Oregon involving the Stanford game. In this case, um, you know, it's, it's interesting because I remember a bunch of coaches have had, have had, I don't want to say similar, but they've had stuff, which is like, what are you thinking? And, you know, like, because we're all sitting at it, it, you know, looking back, you know, either on our couch or wherever we're watching the game and going, how do you not see this? How do you like, why would you do this? 
and the the scenario. And I again, Mario Cristobal did not say this. Our our colleague at the Athletic Manny Navarro did a did a story off of it, um, off the game. And as he's explaining it again, and I'm going to read read what how this uh, story goes. Again, why did my not Miami not take a knee? Question mark. Quote. We were moving the pile and we had a pretty good drive going, Cristobal said before pausing, quote, I am not going to make an excuse for it and say we should have done this or that. Sometimes we can get carried away, but I should have just stepped in and said, hey, take a knee, end quote. All right. So there's a bunch of stuff going on there. Sometimes we can get carried away. That is an understatement there. (laughs) The other thing I would, you know, come back to is. Um, Les Miles was the king of the boneheaded coaching time management decision for a long time. And so when Ogeron followed him at LSU and he, again, Mario has a lot of similarities to Ed in terms of like, these are line guys who love recruiting and they're guys who did not come up the, like the coordinator route where they are, you know, in game of managing situations like that. It's not to say they didn't have any of that. Like Ed did have a coordinator title at one point, but that's not what they were doing. They were, they were position coaches in the moment. And it's not to say guys who are that way can't be head, good head coaches, can't manage games. But again, I think that is some context. So what Ed did was he had somebody on his staff. In that case, it was a guy named George Munoz, who had been an offensive coordinator who he really trusted to help out in scenarios and situations and gave him real feedback and, and, and just kind of context. And what they would do after the, all the less miles stuff, when he got the job was they rep the heck out of specific scenarios that they would kind of devise and run people through to prevent stuff like this. Cause, cause he knew we cannot have this kind of crap happening. In Mario's case, the only thing, and again, he did not say this, but I wondered, and Manny brought this up in the story, Don Chaney Jr., the running back who was, is who had been coming off a, a big knee injury from before, never had a 100-yard game. He, I guess, was sitting at 99 yards when this happened. He went over 100 yards, and he fumbled, and they ended up losing the game. I don't know if that had ever, anything to do with it. I suspect my hunch is it might have, because that would be the only thing Yes, that I could that's fathom. the only explanation that makes any sense. Yeah, and it doesn't make that much sense, by the way, obviously, because of that. And honestly, if you're if you're Mario and if there is some root of it, you're probably better off acknowledging and going, look, this is the, you know, this kid did this, this, and this. We were trying to get him a 100-yard game. It came back to bite us. That's on me or whatever. And, you, you know, there's no other way around it because no matter what you say, and that's not good enough either, but at least... It's a little more plausible. And I think when they fumbled, there's like some element. I, I don't know if you subscribe to this, but I absolutely do. And it, we see it in college football more because there's more mistakes than in the NFL. But when stuff like that happens, you do the kneel, you don't do the right thing. You know, the ball don't lie thing happens and it comes back to bite you. You screw up on a decision, you miss a PAT, whatever. Those things always often seem not maybe not always often seem to come back and bite you. And that's exactly what happened. It, it just always boggles my mind that these coaches, first of all, they're paid obscene amounts of money. In Chris Ball's case, he makes eight million a year. And, you know, these coaches, the games themselves represent if you were just to add up all the hours they work over the course of the year, 
those 12 games probably represent 1-2% of their year. Not but even, Stu. Yeah. Not even. A fraction but of 1%. A fraction. But that is what they're judged on. Nothing else. And so you would think, you like what the plan you're talking about with Ogeron, you would want something like that because you don't want to you know, lose your job, basically, or lose your chance at a championship over something so avoidable. Maybe it's recency bias, but I feel like stuff, not this extreme, but bad end-of-game management is happening more often now. There was some of it in the USC game last night when Caleb threw on first down at the end of regulation for no no apparent reason. Um, well, didn't there, there was a, a perplexing decision? I didn't see this live because I was on the plane, but Jimbo Fish, I saw our buddy Ralph Russo and a bunch of other people were baffled by Jimbo Fisher's clock management. Uh, yep. game situations late in that game. And one was just being too conservative. He punted on fourth and two in, 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 in Alabama territory, like earlier, maybe even in the third quarter, but yeah, they're down nine. They need nine points. They get all the way to the two and they kick a field goal, uh, stuff like that. So is it almost maybe working against them that they have these big bloated staffs? You look up, they show the shot of the press box and there's so many people in there and there are just too many voices on that headset. No, or, I don't think that's the case. Okay, that's I don't think right. that's the case. All right. Or just counterpoint. Like, you know, we they talk about we got to get reps. We got to get reps. We got to, you know, the players need reps. What about the coaches? Like, I feel like they should hold a one three-hour thing a week or something where all they do is somebody, it's almost like a, a, you're preparing for the SAT. Somebody goes, fourth and three, 27 seconds left, ball at this point, go. They do that, And they Stu. have to make they that decision. They do that. They do that in with their players on the field. They do it in because I've I've saw that when I was around LSU. They did that um, in those situations. The thing is, and I would go back to this last year. I was a sideline person for TCU Baylor, and I you I think you remember this game where Max Duggan they're they're down. Max Duggan leads them downfield, and they have this fire drill version of a of a field goal. That their kicker makes. I remember. I remember, I remember talking to Sonny Dykes on camera right after. He was like, "Well, we practice this every whatever." And in my head, I'm just thinking, "Yeah, but you you can practice it, but it's way different in the reality." And obviously, all you can try to do is best simulate it. But like, I you know, again, it's human nature. I think the one thing you said a, a, a couple of minutes ago about wow, it seems to be happening more than not. I don't know that it is happening more than not. I just think that because everything's on Twitter and there's sicko committee of this yeah. and where you're seeing everything you can find. Like you said to me, Hey, you should watch the video of this. Cause you, you didn't get a chance to see it. You can do all that stuff. There's bad beat stuff, you know, through SVP show. And there's, there's just a lot of lenses. We can see this. I find it hard to believe that coaches have gotten dopier. I just think it's like, we're probably seeing a lot more of it now because we're exposed to it. Oh, I think you're right. I think a game like Miami, Georgia tech would have gone, you know, it's the whatever fourth, fifth game of the day on the ACC would have gone just completely unnoticed. But now it takes, I mean, I was watching it live when it happened, but even if you weren't, it's all over your Twitter feed within 30 seconds. But were you actually, but you, you might've been watching it live when it happened, but I'm guessing you didn't happened onto it when they're like, cause there's no reason for you to be, I don't think you to be watching that game against Georgia tech with a minute left. Like why you would turn off that game if you happen to be watching it, <laughs> unless you went to Miami or went to Georgia. Tech. I, um, I did not watch, you know, the first 
50 something minutes of that game, but I saw from Twitter that it was going down to the wire. So I turned it on. Um, you know, a lot of credit to Tim Hasselbeck, by the way, the, who was the uh, color commentator. He was onto it before it even happened. He's like, why are they not lining up for to take a knee? And then as soon as it did happen, you know, oftentimes the guys on TV are the last people to criticize the coach. He flat out said it. He said that is one of the biggest coaching mistakes at this level that I've ever seen in my lifetime. So here's the thing. You know, do you, wait, do, you dis- do you disagree? This is like what he said is not. I mean, I'm not taking oh, issue with it, but what he said is not like profound. I mean, it's like I, it's I don't know anybody prof- watched that and and thought, oh yeah, that think I'm I just that I just it just is. hit me as rare for an analyst to actually say it in that those terms. Like oftentimes they kind of dance around criticizing the coach. He's he called it like it was. So look, Mario Cristobal has always been a bit polarizing. Uh, you can look at his Oregon tenure and say he took him to the Rose Bowl in 2019. He won the Pac-12 the next year, granted, under weird circumstances with COVID. He beat, like, I think they were ranked third, Ohio State, number three, Ohio State on the road. But he also always seemed to have a knack for losing a game he had no business losing each year to kill their playoff hopes. And then he goes to Miami and could not have had a worse First season, they get killed by Middle Tennessee. They they finish five and seven. He had started to get everybody's hopes up again by beating AM the way they did in the second game. And then this happens. This is the guy who, on paper, it's kind of like Scott Frost was at Nebraska, right? The hometown hero. Uh, you know, so much more qualified for that job than uh, nothing against Manny Diaz, but Manny Diaz, his predecessor. Miami is making an unprecedented investment in football. And then this happens, and people are like, you know, he's not going to get fired. I mean, people are saying it, obviously, on social media, they yeah. should fire him tomorrow. It's not going to happen. It just feels like the kind of thing that unless he does, like, turn around and win a championship right away, as people critique his performance going forward, they're always going to bring that back up. They will. Um He's got to keep building. I mean, there's no, um, you know, if he goes 10 and two this season, nine and three, even that's way better than any, anybody thought they were going to do this year. Now that's not to say what happened yesterday was not a, a spectacularly boneheaded decision, but I, I think in, in a vacuum, yes, if they go 10 and two, um, I don't think it, you know, I, I don't think it stops them go, Oh, they can't be a playoff team. I think the question is going to be to me is if you're, um, Dan Radakovich, the AD, or if you are somebody really close to Mario and saying, look, you know, ultimately game decisions, you know, in game management is a, is a concern when you've made this mistake before. Right. And so how do we make sure that something like this cannot happen again? Um, And I think that's the question of how do you how do you learn from your mistakes? I'm not saying like Ed Ogeron was a a complete 180 of the guy that was was the head coach at Ole Miss. But he learned a lot from his mistakes. And the thing that and look, I can feel like I can speak to this probably as well as anybody, because I wrote a book with him after LSU. But I think the biggest thing with him was he knew his own instincts and he knew I have like he was fairly um, 
fairly, I don't say just transparent, but I think you have to come to terms with kind of who you are. And I have a, a buddy who works in, you know, works in college football and college football media. And I don't want to say who this person was, but he was like, he sent me this long text about this. And college football coaches are, you know, kind of I'm tr- like, they're way different. And I don't know if they're way different because they get into this, they're drawn to it, or the fact that they're managing 150 people and they're constantly recruiting. And it's not like you're just a regular coach because you're dealing with a different dynamic of where these people are at this stage of their life and all the stuff that's thrown to them. And, but you go down the list, very few of these guys, and I'm not saying, I'm not saying they're bad people or anything, but they're just way different. Whether it is, um, you, you know, Brian Kelly, Urban Meyer, there, you know, like all the, there's a lot of Lane Kiffin. There's not like quote unquote, you know, like regular, you know, it's just a very different dynamic. And I think, again, I'm not making excuses for, for Mario here, but I'm thinking if you come to terms with kind of, okay, here are some of my shortcomings. Like I work with Chris Peterson right now. Chris Peterson knows, you know, when it gets competitive and these guys are ultra competitive, this is what I'm kind of, this is some of the stuff that comes out of me. And I don't love it, you know, or I know that's not the greatest thing. And I, you know, I'm getting all this to say like, okay, who can manage your shortcomings and how do we, how do we work around it? And some guys can never come to terms with it. Like, I think Ed did a good job of mitigating a lot of it, but at times when, you know, things start to spiral, you know, it's like, and I don't think, I don't think any of them are immune to it. You know, we all see like just baffling decisions. I mean, like, Again, I'm, you and I are both, I think, on Team Ryan Day for this, but you watched, you know, like, you know, looking back at the Lou Holtz postgame, you know, comments right off the field, it's like that, you know, he seems, you know, like he's wrapped in pretty good on this. You see it, some of the stuff, whether it's Lincoln Riley, like I said, Brian Kelly, you see where I'm coming. Do you, do you agree or like? I think what you're saying is these guys tend to get wrapped up in really in the minutia and things they don't need to be bothered with. And it gets in the way sometimes of doing their job, not to keep belaboring this, but I thought there was a really interesting exchange last night on Twitter from Barry Jackson, who's covered Miami sports for according to his Twitter bio, 35 years, the Miami Herald. And first he sends off the quick, you know, kind of snarky reaction that we all like to do, which is instead of spending the off season, sending emails, threatening his staff, if they talked more to local writers, Chris Ball should have worked on simple math instead. What a joke. To which Miami fans got on him a little bit. And he says, don't mean to sound petty with the below, but the broader point made to me by UM staffer is Mario spends too much time worrying about unimportant stuff. And this email below came after a positive article about UM. Hopefully they'll bounce back. Miami's a better place when UM wins. He's so high strung. He does strike me as somebody who would get caught up in stuff like that. By the way, you said, oh, nothing of this will matter if Miami turns around and goes 10 and 2. I don't see that happening because if you know, first of all, there's a three-way top. There's a there are three ACC teams right now. Here's a storyline to keep an eye on. There are three uh ACC teams right now, Florida State, uh, UNC, and Louisville, who we'll talk about in a second, who are undefeated in league play, and none of them play each other this year. 
Get ready for that insane tiebreaker if it comes to that. UNC has to turn. I mean, Miami turns around next week and plays at UNC, where um, they they beat uh, Syracuse forty to seven yesterday. Drake May is on fire. They play Clemson the week after that. That is, believe it or not, a game I think they should win. But later at Florida State and then Louisville. I think that's more like a eight and four, seven and five kind it of is. season. No, it could be like yeah. seven and five would seem like the optimistic. It's not just like as you said. At North Carolina, then Clemson, UVA is not good. At NC State, not an easy team. At Florida State, Louisville, and then at BC. Like, except for Virginia, you know, I don't think anything is like a gimme there. Nope. Survivor 46 is here, and so is On Fire, the only official Survivor podcast, and we have a twist this season. The winner of Survivor 45, D. Valladares, will be joining us every week. We're going behind the scenes of the biggest moments, the how and the why things happen, and the strategy and analysis you can only get from someone like me, a Survivor winner. Listen to On Fire, the official Survivor podcast, wherever you get your podcast. It's only a kick. A jump. A block. It's only a serve. It's only a tackle. A run. It's only for the fans. After all, it's only pressure. You got this. Adidas. Let's talk about a couple teams that actually do have realistic playoff, maybe even national championship aspirations. Oklahoma and Texas. An absolutely classic Red River game uh, reminded me of the 2000s when both programs were at the top of their of their conference and their sport. And you play some you play some epic games. You also had some 65, 13 kind of games. But anyway, um, I think both of us thought Texas was going to win. But it, to me, it wasn't it wasn't a given in part because, you know, Oklahoma had rolled through their first five opponents. They weren't very good, so we didn't have a great read on them. Uh, big win for the Sooners. They avenged last year's 49-0 loss. Dylan Gabriel was fantastic. I assume he will show up high in our athletic Heisman straw poll this week. But what really stood out to me is Brent Venables came in after years of Lincoln Riley and that defense, which we're now seeing continue at SC. I think more than anything, Oklahoma fans wanted to go back to having a defense. Brent Venables obviously was arguably the top defensive coordinator in the sport at Clemson. Yardage-wise, it doesn't look like a great performance yesterday, but, I mean, three Quinn Ewers turnovers. Uh, it just, it just They sacked him six times. Uh, they just they made the plays when it mattered, and they just seemed like those guys were all over the field. To me, one of the things that, that sort of stood out, and I did, Cale Gundy, the, you know, it's Mike Gundy's brother, longtime OU coach and former player, um, I did his radio show and we talked a little bit and he made a point that stayed with me, which was, um, Texas hasn't the best passing game Texas has seen so far is rice. And that was JT Daniels. And obviously rice isn't very good. And then, you know, just how good is this secondary? How good is this pass defense? Because obviously Alabama, you know, Jalen Milro, that was, you know, they couldn't protect him. And when they did, it was like, you know, the, 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 some of the times the receivers were open, he couldn't connect with them. So Dylan Gabriel, like I, I, he's in my Heisman top three right now. You know, we do that, that straw poll and he's definitely in there for me. I thought he was, 
He was fantastic yesterday. And to me, that was the bigger issue, you know, because again, Texas, yours was really shaky early, but then he got hot and they, you know, they had over, you know, almost whatever, 530 yards of offense. But, but ultimately it was like, Texas didn't tackle particularly well. And I just thought Oklahoma's offense and Gabriel was terrific. I mean, to be honest, this didn't look that much different than a Lincoln Riley OU team. You know, I thought that the offense looked terrific. The defense, in this case, played well enough to win. Um, but that, to me, that was, it was just how good the offense did, how t- terrific Gabriel was. I don't think, and I, I read your, your column this morning, you know, so I had um, written about Texas last week and I was on Big Noon talking about them. And the whole Texas is back thing. And this is where I go. It's like, and it's similar to the Miami is back. You know, they're back when there's a parade at the end of the season. Because I don't, I think right now what happens with these teams, Texas to me, and my my point is Texas is different now than these other teams. You know, poor Joe Tess was putting them out there and it's been a, like, it's been a, it's been something that gets mocked and joked about. But like, they're, they're way better than they've been in a long time. But they're also you know, they're still vulnerable enough where if they play a really good team and a really good quarterback, they can, they can lose in a tight game. And that's what happened. And I think, um, here's the, here's the thing, turnovers, Texas three, Oklahoma zero, Mm -hmm. you know? And so doesn't mean that like, I don't know what the other potential game could be because in the big 12 title game, whatever it is, two months from now, like this is such a, obvious you know one especially like i think you and i are similar where we're like oh k-state's you know decent okay state lost to a really mediocre oklahoma state team yeah i mean my thing is obviously a lot of people like to mock texas they they lost with 15 seconds left this this was not a case of oh they got exposed as a fraud it was more okay oklahoma we were waiting to see how they played against a legit opponent especially after how bad they were last year they're good either of these teams to me could turn around, in Texas's case, turn around, run the table, win the rematch, and go to the playoff. And I certainly think Oklahoma, who's 6-0 and now and looking at a pretty manageable schedule down the stretch, could win the Big 12 and go to the playoff. Just two really good teams in a, in a classic rivalry in the last edition of the rivalry that will be in the Big 12. This is certainly not how Brett Yormark wanted this season to play out. I'm sure he would have preferred two of the teams that are staying in the conference to reach the championship game, I don't see that happening at this point. Not all is lost for Texas. One good thing happened over the weekend. Actually, it's a twofold thing. Alabama beat their hated rival, Texas A&M, which not only is good because they probably love seeing A&M lose, but the fact that Alabama is not a two-loss team and Alabama seems to have the inside track to play for the SEC West, SEC title, and you have that win and it was impressive in Tuscaloosa, that's going to look, that's going to hold up. And, you know, and it'll keep looking better and better the more Alabama wins. Absolutely. If Texas were to end up in a situation where there was a debate for the fourth playoff spot and they were in one of the teams in the debate, I mean, you've got the you may have the ultimate trump card there in terms of your uh, great non-conference win. Okay, let's talk about that as long as you brought it up. Um, If we're betting that there's probably going to be a Texas, Oklahoma Big 12 title game, I would probably take even Hmm. I don't know if they'd be better odds, but similar odds that we are going to have another 
Georgia, Alabama SEC title game, which is not something I would have thought halfway through the Alabama USF game a few weeks ago. But they just keep finding ways to win. They beat AM on the road yesterday in a game where Jalen Milroe did it with his arm, which what was the biggest question about Alabama this season? The quarterback. And early on, it was looking bad or worse. Uh, he had a great game. Jermaine Burton had the game of his life. Um, so now it's like, okay, they've beaten AM, they've beaten Ole Miss. The only other SEC West team with one loss is LSU, who does not exactly inspire confidence. Alabama at this point is your is to me is your favorite to win that division. And then Georgia, after all the nitpicking early season, the weird game at Auburn, that looked like Georgia yesterday. Right from the get-go. Uh, you know, clearly Kirby Smart said it's time to unleash Carson Beck. Let him go go to it. And um they destroyed Kentucky 51 to 13. Yeah, a very impressive showing by Georgia all around. It felt like that was a bad timing thing for Kentucky. They were coming off a big win. They had to go there. Georgia's sputtered around. It was like, you're going to get Georgia's undivided attention. And there was a moment in the game, you know, like they they have a couple of really nice runs right out of the gate. I think Ray Davis had like two carries and like average each one for like 10 or 11 yards. Then they have a penalty, and now they're way behind the sticks. Then they have a third and long, and they have a receiver win. And it's like he's wide open, deep downfield. I don't know if he scores, and Devin Leary overshoots him. You So when you play Georgia on the road, you can't have stuff like that happen. And from that point on, you know, they were not able to stop. You know, like also Kentucky had some really, you know, boneheaded things early on. Yes, you know, they there did. Was a, I don't know if you saw like their bestie lineman who's a dominant young player, but he bought, he bats down a pass by Carson Beck. And then all of a sudden you kind of see the, him just, just deck Cedric Van Pran, where it was like, did you think this play was still live or what was going yeah. on? And then, so it was just like every, like when you play Georgia, unless you are, you know, a team that's like a super heavyweight like them, you can't, give them any help and that's that was it and right out of the gate and they would they would have gotten probably ugly either way but they needed every chance they could to stay in the game they were not as far as alabama um yeah i'm with you on that i think that they are around like there's i still don't think alabama at least this this version of it a lot can change in six weeks you know like i'm interested to see like i think alabama's defense i think should be able to do a better job on on Jaden Daniels than anybody else is able to. Like, I have a hard time. Like, I watch LSU, and I'm like, man, they they um, they kind of, they're so shaky on defense, and he is so good. Like, you watch him, and like, um, you know, he was really good last year, but I just like so much respect for what he's doing. Because I think without Jaden Daniels, and I know they have really good receivers, but I think without Jaden Daniels, they're not even a, a top 25 team, you know? And He's carrying but, them and, and overcoming. I thought at one point Luther Burden, the great Missouri receiver, might go off for like 250 yards. They could not cover him. Uh, but they did get some stops in the second half and obviously sealed the game on a pick six. But yeah, Jaden Daniels, 15 to 21 for 259, three touchdowns plus... 130 yards rushing on 15 carries. And I feel like he's doing that every week. Because he is. <laughs> yeah. 
Alabama is still, I mean, I think Nick Saban said afterward that that, that set a, basically that that was like, of all the games he's ever coached, one where they overcame the most mistakes. They had nine false start penalties. I mean, nobody's claiming this is, uh, Gary Danielson kept bringing up the 2015 team. The 2015 team, as a comparison, had Heisman winner Derrick Henry, uh, you know, like a, a, a bunch of future high round draft picks on defense. I don't think this team is close to as good as that team. So it's Saban's quote unquote worst team in probably since at least 2010 when they lost three games. And they're probably going to Atlanta uh, just because that's the state of the SEC right now. And Alabama, to their credit, they beat Ole Miss. They beat AM. and uh, They're beating the teams they need to beat in conference uh, ever since that Texas loss. So good on them. Um, but Georgia, Georgia, to me, was one of the stories of the day in terms of kind of easing some doubts and reaffirming that they can still be an absolutely dominant team. I think if you're looking for an ex- for a... a- excuse or explanation to go yeah this is why they're it has nothing to do with them winning two national titles this was yesterday saturday's game against kentucky who was an unranked who was an undefeated team going in i think that gave you the affirmation because it's like they they have you know their schedule hasn't been like a murderer's row but it's much to this point much better than what michigan has played um i do want to ask you this because we talked about just talked about alabama and a&m we talked about jimbo fisher's decisions earlier in the game so here they are. They are four and two, and they have at Tennessee, South Carolina, at Ole Miss, Mississippi State, Abilene Christian, then at LSU. That's a bunch of ats. Um, <laughs> what do you see for this AM season now going from here? Well, I think they do have a really good defense. Um, Alabama couldn't run the ball on them at all. Uh, and I do think that expectations change. It's a good defense. It's a let's. Let's let me couch this a little for you though. It's a good run defense. It's a good run defense. Like Miami shredded them in the past game, and it's not like Miami has spectacular receivers. They have now pretty good receivers, and Tyler Van Dyke is streaky. But like, and yesterday we saw Burton go off and have a career day. Um, you know who has really good receivers? LSU. LSU. You know, yep. like, yeah. Um, so I don't know. You know, here we are, we're looking at it like I, I suspect, and again, I, I don't feel like Tennessee is anywhere near as good as they were last year, but they're still good and Knoxville's not an easy place to play. Um, if somehow they lose either that game or South Carolina, and then they got an Ole Miss, I would suspect Lane Kiffin would love nothing more than to be <laughs> the one to give Jimbo Fisher his fourth loss and potentially make them try to find $80 million. No question. Uh, there, There is... There are a few coaching, and it kind of feels like a one-sided coaching rivalry, but there are fewer coaching rivalries more where one guy hates the other one more than that. Uh, well, I do think that the, what's unfortunate for Jimbo is that his you know, highly touted sophomore quarterback, who they were counting on to really spark that offense, went out for the season. Max Johnson has experience, but I think he also has a ceiling, and you saw that yesterday. He didn't do much of anything. So now I'm thinking like eight and four would be a success. And, but it puts it right on the cut line of, is that enough to pay $80 million to get rid of the guy? No. And also uh, I get it. You're playing with the backup quarterback, but he's a really good backup with a lot of experience. Um, 
And right now you have the seventh best offense in the, in the uh, SEC. Which is still a big improvement from last year when they were dreadful. But yeah, well, it's not a Stu. You know what? It's not that big of an improvement. They went from ninth to seventh. Okay, I thought it was worse than that. I did too, Uh, but it's not. Yeah, that's why yesterday to me felt like a missed opportunity for them. They could have won that game, and Jimbo just went into ultra conservative mode in the second half, and he was almost coaching like he was afraid to lose, but they weren't winning, and there was no attempt to. Uh, and by the way, they also got a huge break when the Chris Braswell blocked field goal for a touchdown got called back. If that had gone through, then the final score might have looked a lot worse than it did. Speaking of that, so when that happened, I am following this game. My airline does not have very good Wi-Fi. And at that point, I'm following this game on the stats feed. And stuff like that does not translate well because I'm like, wait a minute, the score is wrong than what it actually is. And there's no way to actually, you're kind of like trying to figure this out at this point. And it's nothing, you know, in real time is accurate because it's like, okay, there was a touchdown or wasn't there. The score is saying one thing, but it's actually turns out it's not the score and everything else is kind of backwards. There's nothing more frustrating than trying to follow a game on a game cast. We need to get you the Herb Street jet with the TVs, you know, where you can watch everything. Or I just don't fly United. Like, we had to fly United out of there. Like, Delta, no issue. American Airlines, no issue. United, mm, sorry. I don't think you can I don't think you can predict from what it's just totally. No, you can't. No, I'm on the planes every week for the last two seasons. Delta, fine. You know, like they're newer planes. American is almost always fine. United, they are never. You're never able to get Wi-Fi that can stream games. Well, there goes any chance of us getting a United sponsorship. Thanks, Bruce. <laughs> uh, but if Delta would like to call, we have a very big fan on the show. Getting engaged is a moment worth cherishing. A one-of-a-kind ring that you design at Blue Nile can help your love sparkle. Just choose your diamond and setting. When you found the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Finding the right engagement ring can be nerve-wracking. At Blue Nile, you'll have the expert guidance needed and a diamond guarantee that ensures you're getting the highest quality at the best price. Cherish all of life's moments and save up to 30% at BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. Now, the game you were flying back from and why you were in the plane on a plane for so much of the day was Ohio State-Maryland. And, and for a half, maybe even in the third quarter, uh, the Buckeyes were struggling. And if you thought the end of the Notre Dame game was going to be kind of a springboard for them going forward, we did not see that until fourth quarter when, I mean, the, the end of the day, Maryland couldn't stop Marvin Harrison. There were several times in that game when Joel and Gus stopped, you know, they would show a replay of Ohio State's offensive line getting overmatched. And the way their inability to run the ball, granted Travion, Travion Henderson was out, which is a big loss. Their inability to run the ball, the struggles to pass protect, it's, unless they can get this turned around, it's hard for me to see them beating either 
Michigan or Penn State? Yeah, I think it was noteworthy. Like if you were not watching the game, um, you'd be like, okay, it was tied up. Well, it was like it was midway through the third quarter before Ohio State scored their first offensive touchdown. I mean, it was 10-10 at halftime because it was a pick six. Like Josh Proctor made some really nice plays, including a a short pick six of Leah on that. But like they didn't really do much of anything offensively for for a big chunk of the afternoon. As you said, like they were not getting any running. Like it was just it was for Ohio State fans to be in that building. um, It had to be super frustrating to watch this this team that has been so explosive just bottled up. And again, like Maryland was playing like their two best corners who did such a good job last year in, in that matchup where they almost beat, beat Ohio state. Those guys are in the NFL now and their next best cornerback, Tariq still, he was a game time decision and couldn't play. So they were real, they were, you know, that's an issue. And eventually like obviously Marvin Harrison jr. Really got rolling, but I see what you say. And I don't, you know, I can't disagree with it. And like Maryland, you had to be kicking yourself because there was a bunch of stuff that that they did well and then there was some other stuff where you know early on in the late late in the first quarter they were driving and i think they were inside the five and leah just kind of missed a throw that should have been a touchdown they had to set up for a field goal they they didn't get the field goal late in the second quarter right before the half ended um there's just some stuff where like, I think Loxley's done a really good job, and I do think they're the fourth best team in the Big Ten, but I do think there's a sizable talent drop-off between the, those first three in, in their division and then them, but they needed him to play lights out, and he didn't, and, um, you know, I think Ohio State even got the cover. But it, but it, the final score was not indicative of how much of a struggle that was. I was very fortunate that when at the time we filed our picks against the spread, it was twenty and a half, right under the wire. Um, was so. Does it? Did it seem to you? Now I lost a little track of this late in the game because Red River was so good. But did it seem like Ryan Day is so determined to like prove the Lou Holtzes of the world wrong? It just seemed like he very stubbornly kept trying to run the ball, kept trying to run the ball. And finally, let Kyle McCord rip in the fourth quarter, which is something we really haven't. I mean, he, we didn't see that much in the Ohio in the Notre Dame game at all. I mean, does does do you think that going forward this becomes more like the C.J. Stroud Ohio State teams, where they just say, "F it with the run game. We've got all these great receivers. Maybe we trust Kyle McCord more now than we did early in the season. Just throw the ball around." I don't think he wants to do that. I think at some point he knows we're going to have to like, we're going to have to get work through our run game. To be honest, I think what you see with him is a coach who honestly, like, you know, you said a, like, like a while back when we were talking about Cristobal, how like a fraction of, of the job percentage wise is the actual game. I think, and I understand why it happens, but I think all of us, especially the people who cover the sport, but also fans, we judge everything through the process, through the prism of what happens in that three and a half hours, because ultimately it's wins and losses. But I think we forget, and I, Saban said this after they lost to Texas, was like, okay, this was a midterm, we failed the midterm, and then it's like, you know, we roll our eyes when we ever hear coaches say it's a process. But I do think teams have to get better over the course of a season. And so when you see, okay, they didn't average even two yards per carry, 
Well, that's not going to happen unless you, you really try to work through it. And mm-hmm. I think what you see from Ohio State, and I know this from having talked to people yesterday before the game, hey, we are a work in progress, like all teams are. But I think they are especially that. And I think he knows, like, they have to get better if they're going to get to where they – because, you know what, they don't have C.J. Stroud. I mean, Kyle McCord is a, is a really good quarterback, and he's talented, but he's not C.J. Stroud. And I don't think they're going to win a national title if they if they cannot. Like yesterday, they had 33 carries, or maybe maybe a couple of those were sacks, but they had at least 30. And their longest carry yesterday was 11 yards, and that was Mayan Williams. That is not going to cut it against you know if you are so one dimensional against Penn State, you know you'll you know. Chop Robinson will will eat them alive. And if you're one-dimensional against even Michigan's edge guys in their D-line, it's going to be a long day. He's They have got to find a way, and I think this is just you have to keep grinding to, to have the run game. And look, I, I think they have good backs. You know, and I think they have good backs. I think they have what looks like it could be the, you know, the, the, the nuts and bolts of a, of a pretty good offensive line. But they got to find a way to get that thing going soon. And they don't have much time to do it because they play Penn State in two weeks. You know, Michigan doesn't get either of the other two big teams until November 11th. But Ohio State has Penn State coming to town in two weeks. And so they will need to, first of all, get Trayvon Henderson back. Uh, that's, a, that's a big, big deal. But they will need to, you know, have a game plan that, you know, yes, you want to establish the run, but you also want to play to your strengths. They are 65th in the country right now in yards per carry. Um, not ideal. All right, Bruce, let's let's stop and pause here and tell the good folks a word about our sponsor, Graduate Hotels. The perfect hotel to stay at if you're going to a college game, if you're going to homecoming, reunions. They've got hotels in college towns all over the country. If you book a stay at Graduate Hotels this season, you'll get up to 20% off plus 50 bucks to spend on food and drinks. Just use code GRADFB, that's G-R-A-D-F-B, when you book at graduatehotels.com. Graduate Hotels are really cool for game weekends because they've got live music, pregame refreshments, next morning helpers if you had a big night. They've got lamps shaped like school mascots, rooftop bars, and most importantly, at least for our audience's sake, the hotel is usually walking distance to the stadium. So start planning that football weekend now. And don't forget, get up to 20% off your stay plus $50 for food and drinks with promo code GRADFB. That's G-R-A-D-F-B. Book now at graduatehotels.com. Uh, in the primetime window last night, Louisville, Notre Dame. I think we both have a lot of respect for Jeff Brom, certainly what he did at Purdue. And this is another one of those perfect marriage kind of coaching hires on paper. The difference is... He's already getting it done on the field, six and zero to start his first season, and it doesn't get much much better if you're a Louisville fan than taking it to Notre Dame on your home field, ending Notre Dame's very long winning streak against ACC opponents. Um, are you surprised Louisville is this good this soon? A little, I'll be honest. I mean, I, I you're right. We both think he's really good. He did a terrific job at Western Kentucky. Did some really good things at Purdue. And you know, he's got some transfers that he, you know, he, he brought Jack Plummer, who he knew really well. Uh, Juar Jordan, you know, is a Long Island guy from Syracuse who's been who was terrific yesterday. And the thing that jumped out to me was 
they were looked way more physical than Notre Dame. Like Notre Dame couldn't get the run game going. The like this was flipped. This was the team that like if I'm a Notre Dame fan, I'm like, wait, we should look like them, and they should look like us. And you know, that's a credit to to Brom and to the pieces he brought in, and how quickly there's been the buy-in. I you know, and I don't want to diminish this at all. But what you have was a Notre Dame team that honestly looked fatigued, you know, and they, they, you know, this isn't the NFL. Like they had obviously the big emotional game against Ohio state a couple of weeks ago that came down to the wire. Then they had last week's big emotional game at Duke, which basically came down to the wire. And then they go on the road again against a really good team. And they look like they didn't have anything in the tank. I mean, again, I don't want to, that's not a, Jeff Brom in Louisville, like Jeff Brom is making a strong argument to be like coach of the year. It, you know, I don't know. It's just that, that was kind of my, my, my takeaway from, from it. Well, their defense, which, which you can usually count on under Marcus Freeman did not play well at all. Uh, and you're right. Like Notre Dame wants to be independent, takes great pride in being independent. Go for it. But it does. It often winds up with these schedules Nobody else has to do anything like this, in part because they're always going to be the big TV showcase. So you play a primetime game against Ohio State that goes down to the wire. You turn around and travel and play Duke, who another primetime game with game day in town there. Last they had to come back and win. And then they turn around and it's everywhere you go, it's the biggest, it's the biggest home game in years for that team, as was the case at Louisville. And now this week they're going to play USC. So it's quite a grind. I will say that um, Sam Hartman is a guy who. Can I just know- can I just talk just quickly on that? So if you look at their run defense, week one they played Navy. Obviously, Navy the one thing they can do is run the ball. Held them two point six yards a carry. Then later on they play NC State on the road, two point eight yards a carry. Then Central Michigan, three point eight five. Then they get to Ohio State. We just talked about their run game, the Buckeyes, four point seven yards a carry. Then the next week, Duke. Four over four seven, and then yesterday basically four seven, and they give up. Like it seems like they have they have wilted a little bit under this. Well, the competition's gotten tougher, and over the last three games, uh, and then Sam Hartman has been you know he's supposed to be the savior, and I tried to warn the Notre Dame fans a little bit this summer for all the yards he threw for Wake Forest, the great success they had there, turnovers were often an issue, and. With the low point being, coincidentally, Wake's game at Louisville last year, which was just, he he imploded. Um, it wasn't quite to that level, but he threw three interceptions. And after such a he hot... He two hot, fumbles too, right? Yeah, after such a hot start to the season. You know, basically up until the... Duke, I mean, he had, you know, he got a lot of credit for the way he rallied the team against Ohio State. Up until the last two weeks, like, I was I was impressed and I was saying... Well, maybe he just he's in a better system and good for him and he's turned things around. But over the last three weeks, three touchdowns, three interceptions. The last two weeks, his completion percentage has been 50% against Duke and 58% against Louisville. He's heading in the wrong direction. So Notre Dame is at this crossroads moment in the season. Obviously, they're not going to make the playoff, but they could still turn around and have a good season. But if they lose this game to SC and they have three losses already, um, yeah, it's going to end up being a big disappointment and a feeling like they wasted this year with Sam Hartman. Yeah, we actually are headed to South Bend for that game next week. I think we can talk about USC coming off this. Well, yes, yeah, so you're heading to that game. 
And there was, you know, many moments last night where I thought I thought of you and Fox and like, uh oh, what if it ends up being that they're both going in on a loss? Uh, I mean, Arizona should have won that game. They really should have. And Caleb came through in the end, but it was such a weird game in that, you know, I saw all the jokes about Alex Grinch and whatnot, understandably so. But the weird thing about this game is that USC couldn't do much on offense. And and going into their final possession of regulation, I remember noticing it at the time, um, Caleb Williams had nine completed passes. And they had uh, like 220 yards of offense. This offense that we've come to expect to just score at will, uh, Arizona, Jed Fish, to their credit, did a great job defensively. Couldn't hold up, though, once it got to overtime where you're trying to defend that offense in 25 yards. Um, just just an absolute near miss for Arizona. Obviously came down to two-point conversions. Speaking of weird coaching things, Jed Fish clearly did not realize that when you go to the second overtime, you have to go for two. <laughs> he sent the extra point team out and had to take a timeout to, uh, to get it get to, to fix it. Yeah, look, if I'm an Arizona fan, I can live with that because you were god-awful before he showed up. And you had USC on the ropes, and I get it. You want to win that game. Um, you're right. Johnny Nansen's guys did an, um, a really good job on Caleb because this was the first time I can remember, certainly since Lincoln has been there, where the offense was holding the bag as much as like – because at one point it was 17 to nothing. The offense was having a bunch of three and outs. And then for a long stretch, they only gave up like a field goal. And it was just, okay, when is this going to kick into high gear? Because I felt like from watching USC and, you know, like I, I'll be honest, I missed, like I was following along the game, but the internet was so spotty. I didn't get to really watch, sit down and watch everything until the second half. But I think looking at, at, at them, you see the, you know, Marshawn Lloyd is a guy where you're like, this guy must rush for 200 yards. Like you watch him in the, and some of the highlights of the runs are very impressive at the same time. Um, it's weird. I don't want to say I feel like USC is like, what's their identity? But there is a part of it where it's like, okay, you know, Caleb is going to solve this or whatever. And then when it, when it's not, you're so surprised when they have a bunch of three and outs like he did yesterday. I don't know. It's, it's, it's interesting because they're going to get Notre Dame. I think at a, I think they get Notre Dame at a good time because Notre Dame is that's that's the fourth game. Obviously, it's a home game for them, but like who knows what Notre Dame has? It, you know, has, can get back in the tank. And if you're USC, like I feel like there's not a lot of people on this bandwagon, and yet somehow they're undefeated, and they have it all in front of them. But like, there's not a lot to inspire confidence because on one hand, the defense has not shown very much to inspire confidence. And then you have the offense where you're, where you're surprised, but now also you're starting to see some flashes where the, the bar has been so high that they're not getting to the bar now. I think it was a one-off. I mean, they had, they did have a game. I don't know if you remember a, a game at Oregon state early last year. That was kind of similar for the offense. Mm-hmm. The offense didn't show up that night. <clears throat> so they did have, but one that was of those three weeks, year. but that Stu, that was three weeks into this whole thing for Lincoln. This is a year and a half in now. Caleb finished 14 of 25 for 219 yards and a touchdown. And I think almost half those yards were on the last drive of regulation and in overtime. Um, Arizona's gotten a lot better, like you said. I mean, they have three losses. 
but two of them were in overtime and one was to a Washington team. And frankly, they gave Washington their toughest game so far. It didn't go down to the wire, but certainly their toughest game to this point. Um, they just look like a team that it reminds me a little bit of actually it reminds me speaking of Caleb though, the team that he took over halfway through the season as a freshman, Lincoln Riley's last team at Oklahoma, they got to 10 and 0, I think, or 9 and 0 maybe. And yet every week it just felt like the wheels are going to come off at some point and they eventually did. That's are you what talking this USC like. reminds This is USC, you're not talking about Arizona. I'm USC saying. reminds me of 2021 Oklahoma. Like it just feels like the wheels are going to come off at some point. I don't know if that'll be at Notre Dame. Maybe it's not until they play, or- play Oregon and Washington in November. It just feels like they're skating by. I mean, these are teams they are much more talented than that are taking them to the wire. Um, and last night couldn't couldn't have gone more to the wire, obviously, than Arizona last night. And the competition's about to ramp up. Yes, it will. Yes, it will. Uh, you want to do shout outs, too? Let's do shout outs. Well, my shout out goes to a team that over the years, I don't know that I've ever had much reason to watch Wyoming play football. But this year they hosted Texas Tech in week one and beat them. And that game was on CBS. And last night, Fox had the call for Fresno State, Wyoming in primetime. Wyoming scores 24 points in the second quarter and not and ends Fresno State's 14-game winning streak. And when you talk about, okay, which group of five team is going to make a New Year Six Bowl this year, believe it or not, I think Wyoming just moved to the top of the power rankings. What's interesting, and I was just thinking about this, so... You have a, a Wyoming team that is one of those group of fives that really got squeezed by the portal. Like, and I'm just thinking of this off the top of my head, but they have a bowl game two years ago where their quarterback looks terrific, you know, looks Josh Allen E in terms of like a big guy who can run and throw. Their top receiver, you know, both those guys end up going in the portal, right? One of their most talented offensive linemen, he left this year and he's now starting for USC. And it's like, you know, Craig Bull, who won a bunch of national titles, obviously Nebraska fans uh, remember him from from their time there, from his time there, um, keeps doing a really good job there, you know. So good, good, good on them. Um, my shout out is actually we talked a lot about USC. I'm going to talk about the guy across town. The shout out is to Danton Lynn. He is 33-year-old defensive coordinator, was just hired this offseason by the Bruins. His dad is Anthony Lynn. Denton Lynn is so young that he was actually on Joe Paterno's last team at Penn State. He was a defensive back there. Rose up the ranks pretty fast in the NFL. And he has done a really, really good job there. So going into yesterday, they were actually number one in the country in fewest yards per play allowed. And USC's defense wasn't terrible last year. It was very average. UCLA's defense. Yes, I'm sorry. So UCLA's defense, which you, which in the first couple of years, Chip Kelly was there, was really bad. And then like two years ago, it was, it was okay. And then last year was a little better. But um, this is way different. And again, people will say, okay, you know, I know they played Coastal Carolina and, and Grace McCall is talented, but the rest of the schedule was not very formidable. Yesterday, they played Cameron Ward and a Washington State offense that was scaring people, and it was explosive. And they completely shut down the Cougs. 216 total yards, two for 13 on third downs. Um, 
the Bruins, I think, could be a team that people may have written off after they lost and Dante Moore, their freshman quarterback, really struggled against Utah, which is a tough defense and a tough place to play. Keep in mind, that game, they only gave up seven points to the Utes and that on, you know, their defense only did. And, um, you know, Jake Dickard said after the game yesterday, this is the best defense in the Pac-12. People may snicker at that, but that's a big statement at this point. I think they absolutely are. Cause you're, and I'm glad you brought this up because yes, Wazoo had, had already beaten two top 25 teams. Cam Ward was playing as well as, as Bo Nix or, or, well, I won't anybody, Michael Penix, anybody. Yeah. No, I think he was because he played better defenses. So, than, than so Michael explain Penichek. for those of us who, because you follow UCLA very closely, they were seventy second last year in yard. You say they weren't that bad. They were seventy second in yards per play allowed, and they are now number one ahead of Penn State, Oregon, Ohio State, Clemson, number one in the country. How much of that is coordinator? How much of that is talent? I think it's a combination because, and I've said this a lot on our podcast that. This is the most athletic team Chip Kelly has had since he's been there. The, the guys on the front seven, like they've done really well on the portal. Like Liatu Latu, who, who was at Washington and we'd written about him last year, he's, he's a dominant defensive lineman. They have really good, big, long athletes in the front seven. So they're now pieces. It took them a while to get to that point. I think you see it all kind of comes together. I think you're seeing a team that is very disciplined. Um, I think they're, they have a lot of smart kids. They bought into what Lynn has preached. There's been some continuity. I think right now this is, again, this is one of the more talented defenses in the PAC 12 in terms of like caliber athletes. Cause when you look at them, if you go out to one of their practices, you will see guys who are like, they look like grown men out there. And that's different than what you see at a lot of other places, certainly in the Pac-12. It's just unfortunate timing for Chip Kelly, because if you could take this defense and put it with last year or even the year before's offense with DTR and Zach Charbonnet, that's a team that can win the Pac-12 title. Dante Moore has all the talent and I think has the makings of a um, star quarterback one day, but he's still very much a work in progress, you know, Terrible game at Utah a couple weeks ago. And then yesterday, um, look, UCLA, right before halftime, uh, UCLA had the ball at the five-yard line, and they were about to go up 16-3. Um, to three. And Dante Moore throws a pick six, and instead it's 10-9 to nine Washington State at that point. You know, if, he, if they ca- cash that in... Um, that might end up being kind of a lopsided game instead of 25-17. So. But I think what you got with him is a guy who is, who is learning. Like everything I've heard about him from the guys that I talked to there, it been effusive on his character, his approach, and all those other intangible things. Like if I was a, a UCLA fan knowing what I know, I'd feel really good about how he's been because I think these are things he's going to get better at. The interesting thing with UCLA is – they don't play Washington or Oregon on the schedule, you know? So the way the schedule is fluky. Now they got to go to Oregon state and that's not going to be an easy game for them coming off of this. That's a tough place to play. I know Oregon's, you know, Oregon state's five and one, but they, they have USC later in the schedule. But after that, like I could see 
they would have a. I think they could have a chance to play for the Pac-12 title. Boy, you're not kidding. Wow, looking at the schedule. At Oregon State won't be easy next week, but then they're at Stanford. Colorado, who's kind of limping along now, fortunate to beat ASU yesterday. At Arizona, though, who we've seen is much better. Arizona State. And Arizona, Arizona beat them last year, by the way. So At USC, Cal. I mean, I would think the floor is 9-3, and three, and you could get 10-2, and two, and yeah, they'll be in the mix. I mean, they wouldn't. And that gives Dante more time to grow up. I mean, he's a true freshman quarterback. It he's, does. He's and I think you are under, I think I get what you're saying about DTR because he could be spectacular. DTR did not have a receiver to throw to as talented as J. Michael Sturdivant. And Carson Steele is a load. I mean, Charbonnet was really good. I, you know, I don't know that they don't have the pieces, you know, a month from now. Well, let's see where he goes. Again, I don't think they're going to be. 11 and one, I think probably somewhere like I could see them struggling next week in Corvallis, but I think 10 and two is not unrealistic. Well, if nothing else, they now have the kind of defense that would fit in perfectly in what is currently the big 10 West. Uh, you know, they, they, that, that looks much more like a big 10 team now than it has the last few years. We will come back later this week for our second episode of the week. And we will answer your emails, send your questions to the audible pod at gmail.com and we'll see you next time how did we get away with the things we used to do